Welcome to Sober Discussions. This is Steve and Mike, and sometimes you just need to take out the trash. Hello, and welcome to Sober Discussions. I got some feedback for today's episode, and wanted to give you a brief summary of what we're going to cover. Today we'll be covering Episode 7, The Russia Edition. Today we'll be covering topics on the President of Russia, Vladimir Putin, his involvement with the Kremlin, PSYOPs, and some things you probably think came from the X-Files. So let's jump right in. So before we get into Putin, let's talk about the Kremlin. Mike, can you play that for us? The Kremlin. The Kremlin. The Kremlin. It'll be like Christmas in the Kremlin. The Kremlin says, the Kremlin does. Everybody talks about it. But what exactly is the Kremlin? Kremlin in Russia means fortress. Lots of Russian towns and cities have them, but the most famous is Moscow's Kremlin. A 28-hectare fortified complex dominating the heart of Moscow since around the 13th century. Outside, red brick walls and 20 towers of various heights and shapes mark its perimeter. Inside, palaces, cathedrals and churches, where Russia's earliest czars, including Ivan the Terrible, are buried. It's also right beside Red Square, the site of massive military parades overseen by Russian and Soviet leaders, many of whom are entombed in the Kremlin's walls. So why do people often refer to the Kremlin and Putin in the same sentence? Since the revolution in 1917, the Kremlin has been the seat of power in Russia and the Soviet Union. That explains why the word Kremlin is now used internationally to refer to the Russian presidency. It's a World Heritage Site, and it's Vladimir Putin's official place of work, though he doesn't live there. He's already spent around 13 years as president. If he's re-elect, could stay in power until 2024. That would make it a total of 20 years in the Kremlin. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Kind of how it's the, uh, more or less, you were mentioning the Pentagon yeah. of, uh, of Russia. Anyways, I thought that that was a good takeaway just before we... Uh, get into this uh let's talk about some shady practices and reform putin has done mike can you read that for us yep we're coming we're looking at foreignpolicy.com the kremlin didn't invent term limit resets and constitutional referendums the automatic leaders of kyrgyzstan kazakhstan turkmenistan and uzbekistan blazed the trail between June 25th and July 1st, Russian President Vladimir Putin held a national referendum on a host of constitutional amendments. Unsurprisingly, it passed by an overwhelming majority. What drew the attention of most commentators was not the nature of these amendments, which touched on a variety of themes, from increasing social pensions to banning same-sex marriage, but the fact that by changing the constitution, Putin opened the path to resetting his term as Russian president. In office since 2000, when he was first elected president, Putin has ruled Russia continuously for two decades. He did step down briefly, taking the position of prime minister from 2008 to 2012, but no one had any illusions as to who actually remained in charge. Having reset his term, he could now, in theory, rule until 2036, by which point he will have bested Joseph Stalin as the longest reigning ruler in Russia's modern history. If Putin wanted to stay on even then, who could stop him but the Constitution, which has already been trampled on? In this excerpt, uh, they talked about they had several referendums, including um, same-sex marriage, uh, including term limits, things like that. 
He stepped down for four years. You saw that, right? 2008 to 2012. He has the potential to be there until 2036. And we just read about how it it's going to surpass Stalin with uh, the Soviet Union. He was, I would say, to uh, be running uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike, what do you think? Well, you know, it actually takes me back to one of our other podcasts where we were talking about the longer you're in power, the more corrupt things tend to get. Term limits. Yep. Uh, yeah, term limits. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the case, but it kind of historically seems to be the case yeah. that longer power means corruption. Yeah, we don't necessarily have a good track record at this point. For the longer you're there, uh, you know, the, the better you become. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that's the case. Anyways, thought that that was a good excerpt. Uh, let's continue forward. So... Uh, let's talk about Joe Biden and Putin's upcoming ele election and an assassination attempt. So this is from Time.com. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has so far kept his silence on President-elect Joe Biden's victory in the November election. Other Russians have not been so circumspect. Opposition leader Alexei Navalny, still in recovery from being poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent in August, congratulated Biden in a tweet on November 8th. He praised the free and fair elections in the U.S., pointedly describing them as a privilege which is not available to all countries. When Biden enters the White House in January, Russians' embattlement opposition figures want the U.S. president to more forcefully confront the Putin regime with more rigorous and widespread sanctions in order to help them rebuild democracy in Russia. Vladimir Karamurza, a Russian democracy activist and chair of the Boris Nemstov Foundation, tells Time, It's only for Russians to bring democracy to Russia, but the president must stop legitimizing and enabling the Putin regime that flouts and violates democratic norms. Frankly, it's something no U.S. president in 20 years of Putin's power has done. Mike, any thoughts on that? Let me do some rereading here. For me, uh, is this phrase from Boris Nemstov. It's only time for Russians to bring democracy to Russia, but the president must stop legitimizing and enabling the Putin regime that flouts and violates democratic norms. They have things in place, right? We just read about there being some reforms from Putin that was obviously... Uh, proved and being pushed forward. I don't think a lot of people agree with that. In fact, I think that there's a lot of people really frustrated about that. Um, did, did you have any any other thoughts, or if not, no worries? Well, I'm just a little bit confused. Is this actually mentioning an assassination attempt? No. Well, it's going to come in a little bit later. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, just below the segment. Got it. If you can see. But anyway, no. I'm glad that you brought that up because we will definitely cover that. Uh, Alexei Navalny is the person that's recovering from uh, poison uh, with a military-grade nerve agent. So it does say that in the article. So that's who the attempt was on. Right. Got it. Exactly. We're going to go deeper into it, but I'm glad that you brought that up. Mike, let's go and watch Moscow's protests from the BBC. This summer in Moscow has brought the kind of mass sustained protests that we haven't seen here for years. And what we've also seen are scenes of police violence, protesters being beaten 
in the streets. I think a lot of this really is about those elections. A whole group of opposition candidates were blocked from registering to run. Now they were angry, but the people who'd signed to support them were angry too. They felt that they were being ignored, overlooked, treated like they didn't matter. Right, please And so. that's the thing that you see on a lot of the signs at the protests here. And what you hear about when you ask them why they're joining these demonstrations. It's crisis, political crisis, uh, because we are peaceful without weapon, uh, without aggression, but uh, many people uh, one week ago uh, was beaten in the street. I think those protests might have faded away though, they have in the past, and that could have happened again if it hadn't been for the very heavy-handed way that these protests were dealt with. The real crunch day, I think, was July the 27th. That's when uh, police essentially uh, beat peaceful protesters with their batons. Very shocking scenes that were captured on uh, cameras and mobile phones and uh, spread like wildfire on social media. And that has been fueling these protests even further. Almost all those opposition candidates are now in custody. Uh, one of them, Lubov Sobol, has been detained multiple times and bundled into a police van. And the protesters themselves, more than 2,000, have been arrested, a lot of them fined or placed in uh, short-term custody. And now there's a whole new stage to it. There is a criminal prosecution that's been opened, more than a dozen of the protesters facing up to eight years in jail. That's, that's for what the authorities have now designated a riot, although almost all the violence in these protests has come from the police. Uh, the latest uh, massive rally, the biggest one so far on the 10th of August, that was a real rallying cry. A lot of the speakers saying that these are now political prisoners and they have to be released. And there's another new twist now with a lot of celebrities, including rappers and, and musicians with huge followings amongst young Russians who are joining the protest movement. I think people are speaking out and, you know, I'm here for the first time ever. I've never been to a protest in my life, so... Why now? Why did you join this one? The boiling point has been reached. I guess that's it. So what about the man in charge himself, Vladimir Putin? When the police were beating protesters here in Moscow, Vladimir Putin was going to the bottom of the Baltic Sea in a mini-submarine. And when the biggest protest in years was gathering here in Russia's capital, Vladimir Putin was meeting aging bikers in Crimea and describing them as if they were a great role model for today's young Russians. For a long time, Vladimir Putin has been extremely popular here. His message that Russia is a strong country again has chimed with a lot of people. But the economy is starting to suffer now, partly because of Western sanctions, partly the oil price. But people are feeling the pinch. They're feeling poorer. And Mr Putin's support rating has begun to slide. And I think the tough response to these protests shows just how worried those in power here actually are. Mike, thoughts on that? We were talking in another podcast episode as well about uh, police kind of being aggressive. And uh, this is, obviously we're, we're not talking about America here, this is in Russia. But um, yeah, that's uh, something I hadn't known about. This was in August of 2019 that that was posted. And uh, yeah, that's kind of some sad and shocking stuff that... Uh, Especially when when you can see, you know, if you watch the video yourself, you can see the people really are being peaceful and they're just trying Definitely. to just 
make a point. And then, yeah, the, the police were being brutal. Yeah, they do have the right to peaceful assembly there, which is crazy that they're throwing people for eight years in prison for saying it's a riot when it's police that's the ones... Making it a riot. Right. I thought that that was uh, some good information. Um, All the footage that you do see, you don't see anybody, like, attacking police officers. You just see them trying to defend themselves. It's uh, not good. Yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting. We... So we talked just very briefly about Alexei Navalny and uh, his uh, him being poisoned with military-grade nerve gas. I was able to find an article about it. Uh, this is an excerpt from NPR.org. There's no doubt whatsoever that an operation to poison Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was approved at the highest levels of Russia's government and intelligence services. According to Stephen Hall, the former CIA chief of Russia operations, which I thought was important, there really is no other way to explain this, Hall said in an interview with NPR Mary Losey Kelly. This is something that the Russian intelligence services have been doing literally for decades, if not longer. A German military lab identified the poison in Navalny's system as a variant of a Soviet-era nerve agent, Chancellor Angela McCarroll, announced on Wednesday she said the outspoken critic of Russian President Vladimir Putin was targeted for murder and was the victim of a crime that intended to silence him. Russia has rejected any blame for the attack on Navalny. I'd rather be careful about speaking of accusations against the Russian state. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov said Thursday, according to Interfax News Agency, after all, there are no such accusations and there are no grounds whatsoever to accuse the Russian state, he added. We aren't inclined to accept any accusations in this context. So there was usage of nerve gas that has been identified from a German lab right? And it's been out for a long time. It's hard for me to believe that it was not an assassination attempt, personally. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. Especially, uh, I mean, obviously this is somebody's opinion based on their research. Uh, Stephen Hall, it was, it looks like. Right. Uh, He was involved in uh, the CIA chief of Russia operations, too. So he's got a lot of uh, reason to probably believe that. Right. Um... And where he says that they've been doing it for decades, if not longer, that's scary. Yeah, definitely. And and now we have the opportunity to have Vladimir Putin in presidency until 2036. It's crazy to me. Mike, let's move on to the next section. Uh, let's discuss Vladimir Putin and his statement of his involvement, if you can read that for us. This is from APnews.com. Russian President Vladimir Putin rejected accusations of the Kremlin's involvement in the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, saying Thursday that he personally allowed his political foe to be flown to Germany for treatment. Navalny, an anti-corruption investigator and Putin's most visible and determined opponent, fell ill on August 20th during a domestic fight in Russia and was flown to Germany two days later. He's still recovering there. Tests conducted at labs designated by the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons confirmed that the poison used on Navalny was a Soviet-era Novichok nerve agent. 
Navalny asserted that his poisoning only could have been ordered by spy masters who wouldn't have had who wouldn't have made such decisions without Putin's personal involvement. Making his first public comments on Navalny's poisoning, Putin said he had asked Russian prosecutors to allow Navalny to be flown to Germany from Siberia, where he was first hospitalized. If authorities wanted to poison him, they would hardly have allowed him to be sent to Germany for treatment, Putin said during a video call with international foreign policy experts. Asked to allow his treatment abroad, he personally asked the prosecutors to waive the restrictions on his travel stemming from an ongoing criminal probe. I asked the prosecutor general's office to allow that, and he left, he said. Navalny's spokeswoman, Kira Yarmish, chafed at Putin's arguments, tweeting that in Russia, a human life doesn't matter, and Putin decides at his whim whether you live or die. Putin expressed regret about Germany's refusal to share samples. It said proved Navalny was poisoned with a type of Novichok, the same class of Soviet-designated nerve agent that was used to poison former Russian intelligence officer Sergei Skripal and his daughter in Britain in 2018. The Russian hospital that first treated Navalny said it found no evidence he was poisoned. Hmm. Russian authorities have said they conducted a preliminary investigation, but argue that they needed proof of poisoning to launch a full-fledged criminal inquiry. Give us the biological materials and the official conclusions that would allow us to investigate it and give official and formal grounds for opening a criminal case, Putin said. They have given us nothing and there's no explanation why. The Russian president said he offered to send experts to Germany to conduct a joint investigation, but alleged that Germany and its allies have stonewalled the proposal. No, I, I wonder why, you know, they didn't want Putin to be involved in that. I mean, obviously they had um, the capability to identify that nerve agent. It sounded to me like uh, they really wanted him to die there, um, and then he got sent out. Uh, I, I think it was a botched assassination attempt. Um, I thought it was interesting that... Uh, he personally allowed his political foe to be flown to Germany, and that it, what do they say, a little bit later on that... Vladimir chooses whether you live or die, and yeah. a human life doesn't matter. That's it. Yeah, uh, that's some heavy stuff, man. I don't want my president feeling that way about me. Yeah, I'd really like to uh, to not feel that way. I thought that that was uh, important. Let's move on to our next section. So, talk about a successful assassination from radiation poisoning from Polonium-210. This is an excerpt uh, from Wikipedia. It does have many other sources. If you want to uh, crap on Wikipedia, that's totally fine. This just had some really truncated information. It is very readily accessible if you wanted to research it. But Alexander Levinenko was a former officer of the Russian Federal Security Service, FSB and KGB. After speaking critically about what he saw as corruption within the Russian government, he fled retribution to the UK, where he remained a vocal critic of the Russian state. Six years after fleeing, he was poisoned by two Russians in a suspected assassination. On November 1st, November 2016, Levindico suddenly fell ill and was hospitalized. He died three weeks later, becoming the first confirmed victim of lethal polonium-210 induced acute radiation syndrome, becoming the first confirmed victim of 
lethal polonium-210 induced acute radiation allegations about misdeeds of the FSB and his public deathbed accusations that Russia President Vladimir Putin was behind his unusual malady resulted in worldwide media coverage. Subsequent investigations by Russian authorities into the circumstance of Levinko's death led to serious diplomatic difficulties between Russia, between British and Russian governments. No charges were ever laid but a non-judicial public hearing was put on in 2014 to 2015, during which the Scotland Yard representative testified that the evidence suggests that the only credible explanation is the one way or another the Russian state is involved in Leviticus murder. Another witness stated that Dmitry Kovtun had been speaking openly about the plan to kill Vinico that was intended to set an example as punishment for a traitor. The main suspect in the case, a former officer of the Russian Federal Protective Services, Audrey Lagovi, remains in Russia. Before we continue on that, they did a, a really large investigation. They were able to actually trace the uh, isotopes onto an aircraft. Wow. They were able to follow that radiation print uh, all the way there. For real, it happened. It's crazy. Uh, that they went to those lengths to find someone in the UK just to kill him. Uh, other than uh, to set an example as a punishment for a traitor. But anyways, Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, right at the very beginning of the article, it, it says that he uh, saw corruption in mm -hmm. the government. And then it uses the word fled. He fled he from fled. the government. He which dipped. Which indicates that... He didn't just kind of walk away from the situation, but he was, like, probably verbally assaulted in some way and didn't feel safe. And uh, some death threats? Yeah. Yeah. So he fled. And, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy that not only did he leave the country, but they didn't think that was enough. They had to continue to, like they say, try and make him an, an example. example. Yeah. That's, uh, I, I mean... It sounds like corruption to me. Are you kind of a brutal government? It is the first time uh, we've really seen uh, induced of acute radiation syndrome in a sense of an assassination. Pretty crazy stuff. Let's continue forward. Uh, let's talk about elective amnesia and Russians' push for psyops. Uh, so this YouTube video has a lot of information. Highly recommend watching it if you are interested to watch the whole thing. We're going to take an excerpt I thought was the largest key point for me. Uh, Mike, let's start it, please that seems to be engulfing everything. So much of the news this year has been hopeless, depressing, and above all, confusing. To which the only response is, oh dear. But what this film is going to suggest is that that defeatist response has become a central part of a new system of political control. And to understand how this is happening, you have to look to Russia and to a man called Vladislav Surkov, who is a hero of our time. Zerkov is one of President Putin's advisors and has helped him maintain his power for 15 years. But he has done it in a very new way. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. He came originally from the avant-garde art world. And those who have studied his career say that what Zerkov has done is import ideas from conceptual art into the very heart of politics. His aim is to undermine people's perception of the world, so they never know what is really happening. 
Zerkov turned Russian politics into a bewildering, constantly changing piece of theatre. He sponsored all kinds of groups, from neo-Nazi skinheads to liberal human rights groups. He even backed parties that were opposed to President Putin. But the key thing was that Zerkov then let it be known that this was what he was doing, which meant that no one was sure what was real or fake. As one journalist put it, it's a strategy of power that keeps any opposition constantly confused. A ceaseless shape-shifting that is unstoppable because it's indefinable. Which is exactly what Serkov is alleged to have done in the Ukraine this year. In typical fashion, as the war began, Serkov published a short story about something he called non-linear war. A war where you never know what the enemy are really up to, or even who they are. The underlying aim, Sarkov says, is not to win the war, but to use the conflict to create a constant state of destabilized perception in order to manage and control. But maybe we have something similar emerging here in Britain. Everything we're told by journalists and politicians is confusing and contradictory. Of course, there is no Mr. Sarkov in charge, but it's an odd, non-linear world that plays into the hands of those in power. British troops have come home from Afghanistan, but nobody seems to know whether it was a victory or whether it was a defeat. Aging disc jockeys are prosecuted for crimes they committed decades ago, while practically no one in the City of London is prosecuted for the endless financial crimes that are being revealed there. In Syria, we are told that President Assad is the evil enemy, but then his enemies turn out to be even more evil than him, so we bomb them, and by doing that, we help keep Assad in power. But the real epicenter of this non-linear world is the economy. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? Confusion can be a deadly weapon. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I I think uh, it's definitely done on purpose. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think Absolutely. Uh, they've spent a lot of time researching to find the best effective way to uh, create it. For sure. Yeah, I don't know. Um, using confusion as a way to control people and get them to do what you want them to do, that's, uh, that, that's some pretty deep manipulation. And uh, lots of people end up getting divorced from uh, manipulation that goes far right. enough that it kind of becomes abusive. Sure. And uh, it sounds to me like these people are starting to abuse their entire country. Yeah, uh, or at least in the past decades, to say the least. Yeah. Um, anyways, I thought that, that was an important uh, point to talk about, reduction of PSYOPs. Um, I was able to find a first-hand account uh, from a gentleman named Paul Lin. So uh, I thought it was important to cover. PSYOPs' missions is to persuade and to alter the behavior of a target audience. That's what advertising is all about. It was a good fit. I joined. Of my 20 Army Reserve years, 18 were in PSYOPs. I was an intelligent analyst trying to keep track of what was then happening in Haiti. Our PSYOPs unit area of interest, and later I was a TV production supervisor under the assumption the Army might take over a local TV station in some country, which I thought was crazy. That was an excerpt. 
Uh, I'm going to get to the bulk of what I wanted to cover. If you had told me back when I was training in how to get mass foreign populations to behave in a manner that served the best interests of the U.S., that someday there would be magic system through which I could create a PSYOP message that is propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation. In a few minutes or hours, distribute it instantly to a hundred people, quote-unquote local plants, and the target population or even the malleable low-information locals, many of whom would instantly redistribute it in hundreds more like them who would in turn send it to hundreds more. I've had thought we had landed in PSYOPs heaven. And that is exactly what these foreign sources are able to do today. And some in our news media, political establishment, campaigns, and social media technology companies are complicit. A large problem is in the way this issue is messaged. Many carelessly refer to the scheme as election hacking or interfering in our election, conjuring images of some geek messing with voter registration, ballot counting machines, or paper ballot counting, etc., intent on alternating vote counts or voter cast. Those conducting this PSYOPs campaign are being more subtle than actually tampering with anybody's vote, ballot, or registration. They're simply trying to delegitimize the 2020 election process. One hope is that as a result, millions will just not vote. They'll have become so confused, artificially enraged, or disillusioned with our democracy, they'll figure voting just isn't worth it. Which I thought um, has come around. I think I've heard that before. A few yeah, people. Yeah. Seemed like it kind of worked in that aspect. Or the meddlers hope people who do not vote will do so with fears brought up by deception, disinformation, and misinformation, and their choice will be somebody foreign forces want in power or the primary election candidate easiest for the side they support to either defeat or delegitimize in the 2020 general election, or both, which is crazy to me. I think that's why we need a non-bipartisan system, in my opinion, not to help uh, alleviate that. But we can't let this happen. It's probably outside the U.S. government's power to convince us of this. Who would believe them in these fractured times anyways? It's up to everyone. Read, view, and listen carefully. Be skeptical. Doubt what you hear. See or read. Check multiple trusted sources to confirm what you read. Then actual, And then act responsibly for a change of pace. Try some of the less political-leaning news sources, such as the PBS NewsHour or NPR, or a variety of news and opinion available every day in the Star Tribune. Seems like it's just like a name drop to me. But to get a well-rounded and non-hyperbolic overview of this confusing world. Mike, what are your thoughts on that? We live in a weird time. I mean, I'm just kind of thinking about this scenario and these situations as a person who is being abused or used by right. the PSYOP system. And uh, there there could be a lot of confusion uh, knowing that there's some of this stuff going on. And uh, I think that it's it makes a good point at the end of that article to really do your research and research around 
lots of sources because that might help you kind of discover what really is the truth. But even then, you know, it, it may not totally reveal it and you might just kind of end up confused. But I think the important thing is we're still citizens and we still should do, you know, what we can to support um, our, our government in positive ways. We shouldn't choose to not vote and to not participate in things based on confusion. We, we should still participate, but I think we should just do it, you know, the best way we can, given right. the scenario. Definitely. I just wanted to add a couple of things on that too, Mike. Uh, we talked about doing research. Uh, what I thought a key point for me was to act responsibly about it. Uh, you can act enraged about it. Uh, your message won't be reached because it'll, it'll be delegitimized. That's entirely the impulse is to create distrust and to create this divide. And we just need to act responsibly and do what we think is best for our country, for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go too deep into it, but a couple of topics that have been going around social media, people talking about it, is uh, one-issue voting. Uh, some people get really focused on an issue that they aren't willing to look at the broad spectrum of what's actually happening. I would say that that might be a PSYOP tactic. I don't know. Could be. But anyways, I thought it was interesting. At the bare minimum, we're not taking a big look at the big picture. We're not acting responsibly about it. We're acting very emotional about it. Response. Very responsive about it. I think I remember reading a book talking about, and I'm going to paraphrase it, I'm not going to say it exactly, but it's something like the first 15 seconds that we get from a perspective uh, is how we react, like something like 85% of the time or something like that. First 15 seconds. Humans are very reactionary. Right, yeah, we are. And, and I think it's always going to take a step back, look at it, do research about it, have an educated um, knowledge about it, and then act appropriately. Anyways, so that was important. Uh, anything else, Mike? No, I, I, I like what you said. I, yeah. Thanks. Uh, so let's, as we are continuing from PSYOPs, let's talk about bounties on U.S. soldiers and an interview with Secretary of State and Donald Trump's, who is our president, uh, what they said was false information. Mike, can you read that tweet for us? The Russia bounty story is just another made-up by fake news tale that is told only to damage me and the Republican Party. The secret source probably does not even exist, just like the story itself. If the discredited at New York Times has a source, reveal it. Just another hoax. We do have an interview uh, from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo about Russia and its involvement with bounties on U.S. soldiers. Mike, can you read that excerpt for us? This is from nytimes.com. Washington. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said he warned Russia against offering bounties for killing. American and coalition troops in Afghanistan, even as President Trump had designated as a hoax, a CIA assessment that Russian carried out such a covert operation. Mr. Pompo's remarks in an interview on Wednesday came as new details emerged about one aspect of evidence involving Russian passport numbers that led CIA analysts to link the suspected bounty operation to the elite unit 29155 of Russia's military intelligence agency known as the GRU. The Secretary of State also disclosed that the Pentagon similarly cautioned Russian military leaders about the suspected bounties 
as he acknowledged that he had delivered his own warning to Russian Foreign Minister Sergei V. Lavrov. If the Russians are offering money to kill Americans, or, for that matter, other Westerners as well, there will be an enormous price to pay. That's what I shared with Foreign Minister Lavrov, Mr. Pompo told Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty during a trip to the Czech Republic, according to a State Department transcript. I know our military has talked to their senior leaders as well. We won't brook that. We won't tolerate that. No, Mike's uh, thoughts on that. Honestly, I'm just trying to figure out why the Russians would put a bounty on American soldiers. I think um, a lot of it's just to create some chaos. I think uh, they also don't like the U.S. to an extent. I think uh, they uh, also want to get some favors from maybe some extremist groups, possibly. Hey, we paid you money to do this. Can you do this other thing for us since, you know, we're good for it? Kind of thing. We were able to track it down to the Unit 29155, Russia's intelligence agency. It just seems really coincidental uh, for that to not be reality, in my opinion. Uh, what I thought was interesting is that we've got our president saying that it's fake news. Then we have our Secretary of State talking about Russians' involvement with that. It makes me really frustrated. It makes me really angry. It just, you know, I, I would be just as angry. If it were the flip side, you know, if Definitely. if uh, Russian soldiers had a bounty... men at all, yeah, I agree, of, like, putting bounties on other soldiers, you know, names just to kill them. I, I don't think that's reasonable. No, it, it's, yeah, it's not okay. I don't like that. So, so that was kind of, I guess you'd call an emotional outburst for me. Let's uh, kind of press forward here. So, uh, as we're going on to our final topic, let's discuss U.S. relations with some friction with Biden and Putin. Uh, so this is from CNBC.com. Uh, immense challenge for Russia. Biden is widely expected to adopt a more assertive stance towards Russia. Outstanding issues include progress over a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine and Nord Stream 2, the massive gas pipeline project from Russia to Germany that is opposed by the U.S. Under Trump and his America First agenda, which characterized his approach to trade and foreign policy, Russia was not a great concern for the administration, and that suited Putin, experts noted. For Moscow, the chief benefits of the Trump presidency were that it amplified America's internal divisions, estranged Washington from its traditional allies, and was inconsistent in its articulation and execution of policy goals. Dara Medell, head of Europe and principal Russia analyst at Varix Maplecroft, told CNBC Monday, The Kremlin will have mixed feelings about the results of the U.S. presidential elections, he added, with a Biden presidency expected to adopt a more aggressive Russia policy, he said, which I've heard before, including from Biden himself. Looking forward, Moscow faces a immense challenge in dealing with the incoming Biden administration beyond allegations of electoral interference. interference in 2016. The U.S. has also accused Russia of placing bounties on U.S. forces in Afghanistan. There is also broad consensus across the U.S. political spectrum on issues such as opposition to Nord Stream 2, 
with America still divided, a more aggressive Russia policy is one of the few areas where bipartisanship can be expected to be sustained, he noted. I thought it was interesting. I've seen some articles talking about how Russia wants to retain uh, borders from the Soviet Union. I remember reading articles talking about how Putin wants to kind of reclaim the Soviet Union. Talking about him coming into 2036, possibly, really gives me a lot of anxiety about it. Um, I'm not sure what the deal is with the oil pipeline. I'm sure there's a big reason for it. What it is right now, I couldn't tell you. Haven't researched it, right? But it definitely would be something worth looking into. And the fact that we're having such an opposition about it uh, certainly seems like there is an issue there. Anyways, Mike, any thoughts on that? I, I mean, it sounds like it's probably a good thing that Biden's got a more a aggressive and assertive Definitely. stance on, on things in this way. Hopefully it'll do some good. Uh, I agree with that. No, I, I appreciate that, Mike. Uh, let's continue on to reconciliation, if you can read that for us real quick. Experts agree that there is something that President-elect Biden offers the offers that Russia does like, and that's stability. Experts like McDowell note that the same characteristics that made the Trump administration suit Russia, such as its lack of consistency and estranging of erstwhile allies, was also unsettling for a Kremlin that prioritizes stability and predictability. Politician analyst Barbashin agreed that Biden's presidency means more predictability with at least which at least simplifies planning and makes it easier to predict predict U.S. behavior. There are also some areas where Biden and Putin could even cooperate, they note, with Iran's nuclear program, arms control, and even Syria all being potential areas for negotiation. Arms control is definitely a good place to start for Biden and Putin, experts agree. In 2019, Biden signaled that he would want to see an extension of the major U.S.-Russian nuclear arms reduction treaty, known as the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START. Uh, that's due to expire in February 2021, or the implementation of a similar deal. McDowell said there could be a similar impetus on the Russian side to restart arms control negotiations as well. A key Putin priority will be restarting the negotiations on the new START arms control treaty, as bilateral nuclear agreements with the U.S. are one of the metrics by which Russia measures, measures itself as a great power. Uh, Mike, thanks for reading that. Um, seemed a lot like Cold War kind of thoughts yeah. brewing. Um, it was really interesting to find out that literally next year, February, it's not that far away, that's when that was going to expire for the Arms Reduction Treaty. That's kind of right. crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that would have gone through, or, or I don't even know if it'll go through now, but... Um, I certainly don't think that uh, we would have come to a treaty uh, with the presidency. I just think that um, the idea was is just kind of the same lines of what we had uh, in World War II, where it's just kind of like, you do your thing, we'll do our thing, we won't intervene, because we're just doing our own thing until it affects us, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that's what would have happened. Th this is just uh, hypothetically just thinking about it. Let's conclude with our final article written by Angela Stent, a non-resident senior fellow foreign policy center of the United States and Europe. Uh, this article is really good. 
also fairly long, so I wanted to cover the vitals. Uh, before we do that, I wanted to talk about a couple of key points in this article very briefly. How did we get to where we are today? That's a very valid point. Actually has a lot of information about it, very good. Um, it also talks about what are the most pressing issues for the next administration to tackle, uh, which was kind of a toss-up for me between vitals and for the most pressing uh, issues for the next administration. Um, I'm not going to cover it. Definitely worth a read, though. Uh, so now that we covered that, uh, let's go to the vital part, which I also thought was the most key point of this article as well. And let's close today's episode. So it's uh, vital. So the United States relationship with Russia in, is today the worst that it has been since 1985. Mike, if you remember, 1990 is when the Soviet Union collapsed. Five years before that, that's the worst it's been according to this individual. I thought that was an important yeah. thought. Moscow's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and what happens to be its continuing attempts to affect the 2020 election campaign has made Russia a toxic domestic issue in a way that it has not been since the 1950s. Wow, sounds like some Stalin era, huh? Um, it's annexation, is that right? Yeah. Of... Crimea and launch of an outgoing war in southeastern Ukraine, which is absolutely absurd. Plus, its support of serious Bashar al-Hazad in his brutal civil war. And for Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro has raised tensions with the United States. President Trump came into office determined to improve ties with Russia, but the rest of the executive branches of the U.S. Congress have pursued tough policies toward Russia, imposing rafts and sanctions and expelling diplomats. The U.S. national security strategy declares Russia and China the two top threats of U.S. national security. At the best times, U.S. and Russia ties are a mixture of cooperation and competition, but today they are largely adversarial. Uh, when we talked about sanctions and things like that, if you remember uh, when with the riots that we watched at the beginning, uh, they talked about how they're, they're feeling uh, really crippled uh, from the sanctions and things like that. I think uh, Russia is really using that energy towards this mis just confusion. And it's just really sad, the fact that the reason why U.S. is doing that is to hurt Russia and to try to, like, have them be reasonable. But it's really hurting the Russian people. But if we don't do anything, then it's going to be worse. So... It's like, which side do you you pick? But Lesser anyways. of two evils. Right, lesser of two evils, exactly. Uh, anyways, let's continue on. As the world's two nuclear superpowers, Russia and the United States, bear a unique responsibility to keep the peace and to discourage the proliferation of nuclear, biological, and chemical weapons around the globe. Moreover, there are global challenges such as terrorism, climate change, governing the Arctic, and dealing with a COVID-19 pandemic that necessitate working together. The challenge is to find an acceptable balance between cooperation and competition and to compartmentalize the relationship in a more effective way to the present. Uh, Mike, any, any thoughts on that article? Well, that's scary that we're in the worst right. state with our relationship with Russia than we've been since... <laughs> 1950. Yeah. Right? And, and they talked about 1985, and if we think about 1985, we 
just talked about, you know, 1990 was when the Soviet Union collapsed. The Soviet Union was up to all sorts of nonsense before they collapsed. I mean, that's when the Berlin Wall happened, right? I'm pretty sure it's around that time period, to be honest. This, this is important. So the Berlin Wall was guarded concrete barrier that physically, uh, ideologically divided Berlin from 1961 to 1989. Construction of the wall was commenced by German Democratic Republic on the 13th August 1961. The wall cut off West Berlin surrounding East Germany, including East Berlin. That happened around that time period. I met a gentleman that has a chunk of that Berlin Wall when he was in Hungary. Um, it's a crazy place, man. And, uh, you know, that was not that long ago. Yeah. Anyways, it, what I'm saying is 1985 was before, you know, it being demolished in 19, uh, November 9th of 1989. Anyways, thought that was an interesting excerpt. Um, any kind of other thoughts, Mike? Well, um, knowing that Russia and the United States are kind of the two superpowers when it comes to nuclear weapons. Right. It's kind of scary uh, thinking about the fact that that treaty that we mentioned earlier expires in just a few months. Right. Uh, I really hope we can come up with another. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like these folks too, right? <laughs> and it's scary that we're in bad shape with our relationship with them right now because uh, if that treaty is expiring, we're uh, fighting with them already. Yeah, we might have another Cold War. Not, Possibly. Yeah, it's a possibility anyways. Yeah. Uh, scary stuff to kind of think about. Definitely. The world's a scary place. The world is uh, a scary place. <laughs> um, I, I know a lot of the times in our podcast we cover some hard things... And, you know, messages that are sometimes kind of hard to dissolve, hard to stomach. But uh, hopefully, um, despite it all, we can still choose to be good people. And uh, wherever we live, whatever community we may be in, uh, I think it's important that we do what we can to have a positive impact. Because everywhere it's just got negativity. Definitely. It's crazy. No, I appreciate that. There's a phrase, it's always darkest just before the dawn. Right, we can we can always make that change. We can always make that difference. We can always, like, if we really got our heads together in Washington, and we really wanted to make a difference and help the Russian people, I certainly think we could. Um, I, I think we've not been involved um, enough, and I think uh, instead of you know spending time in Afghanistan or Iraq, I think we could have been utilizing our uh, resources more effectively. And I think that. It's been a long time overdue, us working with Russia, and now we're at the brink of a Cold War, especially with that treaty deal uh, being dissolved in a couple of months, like you said. So, anyways, that was interesting. Uh, anything else, Mike? No. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for visiting with us on our seventh episode of our Russian edition. We hope you have a great rest of your night. Thank you for supporting our podcast. If you would like to check out our sources from today's episode, please visit our blog at soberdiscussions.blogspot.com. And if you would like to join the discussion, email us at soberdiscussions at gmail.com.